Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Bible for African People podcast, a podcast about the Bible, politics, and culture in Africa. My name is Paul, and I have here my co-host, Alfred Apia. Well, today's episode is about slavery in Africa and in the Hebrew Bible. We want to take the time to talk about slavery as it played out in Genesis 37 and in Africa's history. Of course, there are so many other places to go for ideas of slavery in Africa, but we are drawing primarily from the recent movie, The Woman King. Uh, for the purposes of this discussion, we're trying to you know, use that as a reliable resource um, you know, for insights in African history as far as slavery is concerned. And I guess our goal here is to read both stories simultaneously and to outline some conclusions about the act of slavery itself but also ancient African empires who interacted with European slave traders and then the Hebrew Bible. Uh, what else am I missing here, Alfred? You are right, Paul. I think a lot of the conversations out there on slavery in the Bible and in African history are often about the moral and ethical implications of trading humans, which is great. But very few deal with some of the tiny details of the actual process of the exchange, especially examining the role that African kings played in the act. I think that is part of what we want to initiate a conversation about. Hmm. That's, that's quite ambitious, isn't it? Indeed, we should state that this is going to be the first of a series of episodes on the topic as there is more to say than we can do in a single episode. So please come back and listen to the others. Well, awesome. Awesome. So Paul, where do we start from? The Hebrew Bible? Yes, I, I guess let's start from Genesis 37. And Alfred, we know this one. It is the story about Joseph and his brothers. The same story about the coat of many colors and a couple of, you know, some arrogant dreams by Joseph. <laughs> yes, I remember that from Sunday school. You know, for the sake of our audience who might need a reminder, let me briefly summarize the story here. So it is about Jacob, also known as Israel in the Hebrew Bible. And it is about his family. And according to the passage, because Joseph was Jacob's last born son, Jacob loved him more than any of his children. He even made him a fancy robe, you know, the very famous coat of many colors. And his brothers hated Joseph for being the sole recipient of their father's love and attention. Wow. Paul, this seems a lot like some kind of sibling rivalry. Indeed, an ancient Israelite version of, uh, of sibling rivalry. As the story unfolds, this hatred, you know, translated from the Hebrew root saneh, which means enmity. In other words, this enmity by Joseph's brothers grows into violence in the remainder of the story. Uh, the phrase hated him even more in the Hebrew, uses the expression Yosefu, a play on the name of Joseph, which is Yosef. That's truly fascinating. But before all the violence erupts, there were two pairs of dreams that fuels the hatred. One about sheaves in the field, uh, and then the other about the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowing to Joseph. Essentially, in both dreams, Joseph is exalted over his brothers, 
And of course, that doesn't sit well with them at all. <laughs> Indeed, it won't sit well with them. But Paul, let's fast forward to the event towards the end of the story. Sure. Um, so in 12 forward, verses 12 forward, his brothers seized an opportunity to God to be with Joseph alone in the field to get rid of him. You know, for them, getting rid of him was their way of halting the manifestation of Joseph's arrogant dreams. The initial plan in verse 26 was to kill him. But Reuben did not let that happen. Reuben managed to persuade them to leave Joseph naked, that is, without the fancy coat in an empty pit. Eventually, they saw an entourage of traders trekking toward Egypt and thought it might be a better deal to end a profit than just, you know, let him sit in an empty pit. And that's what they ended up doing. Yeah. According to verse 28, Joseph was sold by his own brothers to Ishmaelite traders passing by and he was then taken to Egypt. But you know, there are two major things that fascinate me here in the story, and especially in light of our topic for this episode, which are the events that lead to Joseph's sale and then the actual sale into slavery, especially the power play and economic dimensions of both. Wow. Could you tell us a little bit more about each of these events? Of course, of course. Uh, so let's go back to the sibling rivalry scene in verses 3 to 11. Joseph's brothers hated him first because Jacob, their father, loved Joseph more. Essentially, it is a father's favoritism that starts this whole crisis. Moreover, they hated Joseph even more for another reason, a reason that has everything to do with power or familial hierarchy and perhaps the social benefits that familial hierarchy confers. After the first dream about sheaves in verse 8, his brothers questioned him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? In other words, are you Melech and Mashal over us? And Melech and Mashal, those are the two words that were translated reign and dominion in the RSV. Uh, clearly, Joseph's brothers are concerned about their own authority being undermined. You know, they, being elderly, cannot stand the thought that their younger brother would become their master. The other thought that I had is about the sale in verse 25 to 28. In 26, Judah, the first brother, convinces them to believe that Joseph's death would bring them no profit. Rather, it would be more beneficial, perhaps economically, to sell him off. In slavery, they could both get rid of Joseph and earn some money. Judah is arguing that selling Joseph into slavery is better than killing him. If anything at all, Joseph is one of them their own brother, their own flesh, as the NRSV states it. All this while assuming that killing one's own is not appropriate and that instead of death, slavery is a much better option. Again, the text completely assumes that slavery is a common practice of the time. That is, it would be right to say that alongside commodities like gum or balm or raisin that these traders dealt with, human beings could be traded in the same way for money. In Joseph's case, he was traded for 20 pieces of silver. There are still a lot of questions that we don't know. You know, why would the people trade their own for money? 
you know, as they would trade other household commodities, was Joseph not worth more than 20 pieces of silver? Aside from hatred, did the brothers really need money and so on and so forth? To all these questions, the text provides no answers. All we are left with is the disturbing fact that motivated by hatred and a desire to get rid of Joseph, his own brothers sold him into slavery for profit. Really insightful, Paul. Slavery in the Joseph story is in some ways very similar to slavery in the movie Woman King. Have you seen it? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, you know, while the movie is fictional in some sense, I think it depicts a powerful image of how West African empires interacted with Portuguese slave traders while also depicting some of the internal tensions between neighboring West African empires. But you know, you probably know it better than I do. How does the Joseph story compare to the movie? Yes, the movie features two West African empires, Dahomey and the Oyo Empire who are in battle for power and dominion over the region through the slave trade. Dahomey is a vassal state of the more powerful Oyo Empire. The Oyo Empire is twice as big as Dahomey, and it has joined forces with the Manhi Kingdom to fight against the Dahomeys. Because Oyo sells their people and captives in exchange for horses and muskets, they have more powerful military than any empire in the region. The Oyo Empire, led by General Obaadi, took control over Uda, a port city in the Dahomey territory. That day, the Dahomey had previously occupied to expand their influence and trade network. Obaadi is a cruel man who openly profits from the slave trade and wants to expand his empire at any cost with nothing but capturing others for sale. Hmm. <laughs> really fascinating, Alfred. You know, how these empires wrestled with each other for power and traded their own people into slavery. But, you know, talk to me a little bit about this general Obada, the, the Oyo general, uh, who seems to be like a huge threat to the Dahomey Empire. Oh, yes. He wanted to take dominion over all the kingdom and capture as many people, including people from the Dahomey kingdom, for sale. Obade demanded 50 Agoji warriors as part of the tribute. In fact, Agoji are the mighty warriors of the Dahomey kingdom. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Following Gizo, who is the king of Dahomey's negotiation with Obade, they later agreed that they would pay tribute with 20 Agoji warriors. Mm. Obade believed that the female warriors would mean more wealth and profit as they will be sold to Europeans. <laughs> but of course, the Agoji of the Dahomey Empire resisted. And I like the message Naniska, who is the leader of the Agoji, sent back to Obade. Right. She said, let it be known to all, the great and mighty King Gizu fears no one. Essentially, their king will not cower in fear or koto to anyone. Wow. <laughs> the movie really depicts some of the internal issues, uh, even some of the debates that African empires had among themselves on, on the slave trade practice. Quite radically, it looks to me as though it clarifies that the stakeholders here are not only European buyers, but also African tribal elites and kings. Yes, yes, yes. The film does an excellent job of showcasing the lively nature 
of West African culture. But it also exposes unpopular facts and some controversial aspects of the slave trade in West Africa. <laughs> I guess that's why many have criticized the film on social media, especially with regards to the historical accuracy of, of, of some of the facts that it represents. Well, still those detractors cannot deny the fact that the film illuminated how West African kingdoms saw slavery as their only path to prosperity and power. It is through this prism that the Europeans view Africans. This idea is particularly well addressed in one specific scene. In one scene, there's a young Portuguese slave captain called Santo. He tells Kingizu why slavery is essential for Dahomey's prosperity and power. Santo's averse, the people of my land prosper because of the slave trade. And it is the very same trade that has made you rich. As rich as the king of England, you stop the trade and you will be nothing. Mm. King, maybe, but king of mad, you will be unprotected. Wow. Gizzo responded that the white people only see Africans as commodity, but that disrespect does not affect his throne or the power that comes with it. He also claims that the Europeans depend on the Africans for their slave trade enterprise. As making them independent on one another rather than giving Santo the power to rule over Gizo. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The king's claim attempt to redress the presumed European-centric power dynamic of the time, right. which worked against the interests of the Africans who saw their loved ones, families, and valuable human resources sold to the Europeans. You are right. I, I remember that scene very clearly. It is in that scene that we see a power struggle intermixed with economic greed but also need between empires. In fact, the desire to gain power and dominion over one empire undeniably undergirds the slave trade regardless of the historicity of the movie. I think the reason this movie reminds me of the Genesis 37 passage is because they both depict slavery as a common cultural practice of the time. That's one. Uh, secondly, the desire for power and wealth as a catalyst. And then uh, lastly, they both depict a people selling their own as a key aspect of the trade. In the Joseph's passage, his brothers selling him, that is, you know, their own flesh. And in the movie, the Oyo Empire so desperately turns its own people over to the European traders. Of course, you know, one is on the familiar level and the other is on a, you know, rather imperial level. Yet still, they help us think about slavery in these two contexts quite differently. Now, you know, let's let's wrap up here, Alfred. What do we learn from all of this? Yeah, I will talk about the role that African empires played and maybe continue playing now in our world today. Mm -hmm. There is certainly no buyer if there is no seller, right? Mm -hmm. Of course, arguments can be made that if the buyer has more power, their influence calls for sellers. Mm -hmm. And that normalizes a trade. Agreed. Right. Rather than endless debates, we see here in both the biblical text and in the movie a phenomenon that points at multiple stakeholders, not one, mm -hmm. a buyer and a seller. Mm -hmm. We do not condone the deeds of European traders at all. Mm -hmm. They are as guilty as they have been. Our only goal here is to initiate a much more nuanced conversation about this other aspect of slavery that isn't often mentioned. How else are some African leaders trading their own people today? 
That's a, that's a really good question. I'm sure we can find some examples from West African leaders, especially Ghanaian leaders who strike close door deals with Chinese and European governments to export raw materials out of the country okay, to Chinese and European entrepreneurs empowered by corrupt politicians mining gold illegally in Ghana. Mm-hmm. We don't have time to talk about the details of awarding all major contracts in West Africa to foreign companies or about foreign investors maltreating local employees at the watch of various labor ministries in West Africa, particularly in Ghana. For me, these are all extensions of practices similar to that of Joseph's brothers or the Oyo Empire or what we saw in the Woman King movie. Wow, that's truly radical. Well, but maybe a last one about the Bible. I think this discussion also reminds us uh, that the Bible, no matter what Africans think about it, whether it's scripture, literature, rule book, etc., that it is also a cultural document that unfortunately doesn't always exude the kind of ethics that we would expect from it. So rather than explaining slavery out of the Bible, shall we confront it? Does it is important that we read the Bible not only closely, but open-mindedly and with what I would like to call wisdom. Also, while we have no evidence yet of how Genesis 37 may have fueled the actions of some European slave traders who exploited Africans, I wouldn't necessarily close my mind to its possibility, especially knowing how other passages from the Hebrew Bible were wrongly used to sustain ideas of race and slavery in the 19th century. Well, that's all we have for you today in this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Do come back for the others. Until then, see you around and peace out. Peace out.